Hey, welcome back to Hustle Parameton Podcast. Over summer, Jim Hall has had the opportunity to be sharing at Athabasca Mission Church. Listen in as Jim shares part one on Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is great. It's really great to be to be with you. This is the uh, maybe for a couple of you. Uh, you're in the same boat that I am, and this is this is actually the first uh, in-person worship. Uh, service that I've been to in in uh, four months, and so it's uh, it's pretty awesome actually. So I'm uh, I'm very happy and uh, just grateful for the opportunity to be with you, and uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I remember we did a, I did a couple of uh, messages. Perhaps some of you might have seen them just uh, on video uh, that I sent out, and then uh, just actually on Friday I did the same kind of thing for another. Another church in uh, in Edmonton did a. They record their service on Friday and then they send it out on on the Sunday and stuff. So this is really a treat to be able to be to be physically with people, and uh, you know it's it's. I've noticed uh, I've noticed over the the last four months that you know there's that old joke that people used to say, well, church would be great if it wasn't for the people, and uh, I want to. But now we're actually recognizing how much. How, how wonderful it is with the people. It, that's the church is the people. It's, it's the gathering of God's people uh, together. And so it's a real, uh, a real treat for us to be, uh, to be able to gather like this. And so uh, I'm grateful, as are you. So, uh, yeah, as, as Herb said, we're gonna be, I'm going to be doing uh, sort of this, this short transitional summer series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so kind of looking at it over the next uh, six weeks or so. And uh, going through what I think is just one of the most, uh, it's very, it's well known, I think, to many of us, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and yet, it's, it's so, uh, sometimes when things are so well known, uh, we can almost neglect them. And, and I believe just strongly in, in the foundational nature and the important, foundational importance uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, uh, I just really felt like a good, uh, subject for for us to kind of dig into over the next few weeks as you prepare for your new pastor to come and to to arrive and just provides uh, just a solid kind of foundation is what I'm I'm hoping for so I'm just going to pray and then we'll we'll uh, we'll kind of get into it a little bit Lord thank you for uh, thank you for today we say that this is indeed a day that you have made and it is good and we rejoice in it. We rejoice and are thankful, Lord, that we can actually get together, that we can be in this place, that we can see one another, uh, we can talk to one another. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your word, which is always living and active. Uh, And God, we just want to open ourselves. Holy Spirit, you're here with us. And we want to open ourselves to what you would want to say to us through, uh, through a passage that I think, Lord, many of us have heard before. And, uh, and I pray, God, that it would be a new, uh, a new word for us, that it would be your spirit would be uh, stirring and creating life. Jesus, you're the one that always has words of life. And so we, we believe that you have those. We actually anticipate uh, that you have things to say to us today. And we, we uh, just want to have our spiritual ears open to what you're saying to us, Holy Spirit. And so we bless you. Uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've, uh, as we've been saying already, we're in this in this season uh, of COVID. 
19, and, and life is un, it's different. It's unlike anything that, that any of us have ever really ever experienced. We're all sort of trying to navigate uh, the changes. We're trying to navigate what things are, are like. And certainly uh, my wife is, has had to navigate that for, uh, in some, some particular ways because she's a school teacher. So she, that's what she does full time is teach high school in Edmonton. And uh, one of the things that was a, a very steep learning curve uh, for all teachers all over the place was trying to figure out how do you do online, uh, how do you do online instruction. And uh, so our uh, she sort of took up, uh, established sort of base camp in our living room and, and uh, transformed our dining room table into her, her office. And, and uh, you know, you're trying to, she, she had the computer going, but then she had this other thing where she had this huge stack of textbooks that was like about that high. And on top of that was perched a camera that shone down on, onto a board that she would write on. And it was, it was quite, an, quite a thing. But one of the unique aspects of it was... Uh, was the fact that uh, evaluations or tests or whatever uh, re really hard to to do that, and uh, for a lot of teachers. And so there's uh, won't go into all the details, but one of the things that became you know it became really uh, common is is just an open book test, saying all right here's the test, here's the exam, when, or here's you know here's the evaluation thing, and uh, you can you can have your your book and it's open and you can just take your time and. Uh, there were various tools that were that were used by different schools and such to help with that. But uh, you know, I, I feel that in some ways, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is is like God explaining to us. It's like the, the the textbook in a sense. It's like God saying, "This is what is important for you to know. This is what is important." Now, it's, I don't want to. I don't want the analogy to go so far as to think that this is there's a test of life and that somehow we're that there's a pass or a fail and in terms of like salvation living according to the Sermon on the Mount is not how we're saved. It's not the basis. Uh, our faith in Christ and what He has done is the is the foundation of our, our our salvation. So it's not a test in that kind of a way. But in terms of the things, not so much that God is looking for uh, from us, but in terms of what God is doing in us, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is extremely important. And so I believe that just as you, know, you could uh, open a textbook and sort of look and study the material, it's really important for us to look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and uh, that these three chapters are, are extremely important. And there are so many different lessons uh, that we can draw from from these chapters and from these verses, and so uh, that's why I really believe that this is is such an important uh, text for us to to look at. And today, what I'm just going to do is the, sort of the introduction to it, uh, provide a bit of an overview, and then just really quickly go through uh, the the beatitudes, uh, which uh, Herb read for us uh, already. And so we'll just kind of go through it. Uh, again, this, it's not in any way uh, uh, majorly in-depth. But I want to give you some, some, uh, some, not only food for thought, but I, what I believe uh, the Spirit would stir in us uh, about the way that God is working in us. That sometimes we wonder, you know, you, you, know, you wonder, well, what's God doing? And where is God working? And how is He working? And you sort of wonder, what's He up to? Uh, and I believe that this, is, this gives some really important insights uh, into that. So let's just, we'll start off with just 
Uh, I like to sort of highlight the fact that the term, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a term that Jesus used. Uh, it actually was coined uh, a long, long time ago by a famous guy named St. Augustine of Hippo. So St. Augustine uh, was, uh, he, he lived in about three, uh, 354 to 430 AD, so like a long, long time ago. And he, Augustine was the, the bishop of uh, this region called Hippo, and so that's why he's called Augustine of Hippo. I actually have a, uh, I like hippopotamuses, and so this is an aside, but I, I actually have a, 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 so years ago, I, somebody, it might have been my wife, it might have been somebody else, gave me a stuffed hippopotamus and a small thing and so I call it Augustine so my name the name for my hippo is Augustine uh, but the Sermon on the Mount he was the one that coined that phrase and it kind of stuck through uh, through church history and it's really what we have in Matthew 5 6, 6 and 7 is the longest continual prayer of Jesus or uh, teaching of Jesus rather uh, and it gives a, just a, a really concise summary of, of the core teachings that Jesus uh, brought forth. Uh, John Stott, uh, the writer and commentator, he, he is referred to, to it as Christian counterculture. And that's a phrase that I'm going to use throughout this series, is the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is Christian counterculture. And uh, really that Christianity at its core is essentially, it's fundamentally countercultural. Uh, it goes against the, the grain of the world. It's, it's, it's contrary to the, the, the natural uh, world in which we live, the fallen natural world that, uh, w- that has been corrupted by sin. Uh, another, common, another famous pastor said that it, it is the perfect picture of life in the kingdom of God. Again, I really I, I appreciate that so much because uh, we're going to see, I think, over these next weeks why that's the case. Uh, I there's many ways that people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount. It's been it's been preached on like innumerable times. Books and books and books have been written about it. There's many ways to approach it, uh, so, but I have to choose. I have to choose one a way of looking at it, and the way that I I appreciate looking at it is looking looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a single progression of thought. That uh, rather than sometimes it it feels like a bunch of of random teachings and concepts. Uh, but what I'm hoping to do is sort of teach through it in in a way that I, I think. Uh, provides more of a progression that there's actually a beginning uh, you know I would say that the, in a lot of ways the Beatitudes kind of form which we're looking at today forms like the table of contents and then you've got some of these further teachings that sort of uh, I believe actually have a flow to them uh, and when you read them when you read those three chapters it can appear well it's just sort of like one minute Jesus is talking about this next minute he's over here and how does this relate to that and I'm hoping that we'll be able to kind of exp- uh, explore how those things uh, how that thought might uh, might come forth so there's you know like it's a it's a sermon on the it, it's a sermon but it's different than what I'm doing uh, we don't know exactly the exactly what it was like some scholars actually believe that this might have been Jesus gathering with a group of people for several days and what we have is Matthew's uh, summary of it. What we have is, is the real, the, 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 uh, the main points that have been brought together uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit as Matthew uh, wrote the gospel. And so uh, he begins, as, was, uh, as I've said, with the, this series of the Beatitudes. 
and, and I just want to give like a bit of a, uh, an overview is that there's two main sections to the Sermon on the Mount. One is, I believe, looking at the character of Jesus that is developed in us. Okay, so that's, we're going to dig into that today. So the first sort of, I would say, big part of this uh, is the character of Jesus developed in us. But then there's this, a much longer period, uh, section of it, which is that char- how that character gets lived out um, amongst other people. So the, the, the bulk of what Jesus talks about is highly relational. How do we relate to one another? How does God call us to, to love one another and care for one another and treat one another? How do we interact? What, how does life go? Uh, and so we have this, this thing where Jesus talks about uh, some of the characteristics of the kingdom of God that are being developed internally within us. And then, as I've, already, as I've just said, uh, there's a great deal about how that actually translates. Because uh, it's great to have sort of, you've got the kingdom of God living within you and, and uh, to be Christ-like as Christians. We're followers of Jesus who are seeking to be like Jesus. Uh, but how does that get worked out? What does that look like in the way that we uh, interact with our family and friends and neighbors? And I think that that's, uh, that's a, just a good way to sort of look at those two major sections of it. So let's, let's just kind of go through. I'm going to provide uh, just a summary of, of some of the, uh, just a few points on the, on the Beatitudes. And we can, we can begin to, to look at that. Um, you know, it says there's the, each one of them has this word blessed or blessed. And so, well, what does, what does that mean? What does it mean when it says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed... What is this word blessed? Uh, well, it's, a, it's actually given uh, some, some, some real challenges for some over the years that have sought to sort of understand and, and uh, translate it in a way that's, that's, uh, that's easily understood. Uh, many commentators have said that it really refers to the idea of happiness, so, you know, happy are those who da-da-da-da-da. Uh, another way of looking at it is that it, it carries the concept of God's approval uh, or God's blessing, his, his blessing or his approval on, on those that, uh, and he, as he goes through the, through the list. I want to point out the fact that the Beatitudes are for all believers. Uh, now, that may sound obvious, uh, but for reasons that I, just for lack of time, I won't be able to get into, uh, it's not actually totally obvious, but I do want to make clear the fact that, that I, I fundamentally agree with those that have, that have argued over the years that the Beatitudes are normative for all of us. So this is different than, say, uh, spiritual gifts. We're not talking about spiritual gifts that are distributed according to uh, the will of God uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Beatitudes are normative for all of us. And so if they're normative for all of us, then, we all, then it's important that we uh, familiarize ourselves because, it's, again, it, these are not things that... Uh, we have to somehow work up and stir our, ourselves towards uh, as much as it's a matter of cooperating and saying, Holy Spirit, this is what you are doing in me. This is how you are at work uh, and help me to cooperate. 
Because we, we don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. We all do that from various times. Most of the time we're not necessarily aware of it. Uh, but we know, I certainly know what it's like to just sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily fully cooperating with what the Holy Spirit uh, is doing. And so uh, I just want to point that out. Uh, so these Beatitudes are also just in, they are, they are in stark and dramatic terms. They describe some of the most fundamental differences between a Christian and a non-Christian. Uh, so the Beatitudes are simultaneously uh, repelling in one sense to those that are, just, that, are, that are not followers of Jesus. They just they don't make sense. They're, they're not something that they're interested in. And you'll, we'll understand that as I, as I go through them. Uh, but yet they're simultaneously also attractive as well. Uh, and so we're, we're going to look at that. So the first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew 5, verse 3. Uh, and really this concept of being poor in spirit, well, it says, you know, like, so blessed are the poor in spirit. So that doesn't sound great. It sounds like, well, I don't really want to be poor in spirit. Wouldn't it be better to be rich in spirit? Isn't that? We're like filled with the Holy Spirit. We're, we're rich in spirit. Uh, but no, the, the Lord really is saying, you know, blessed, there's this, there's this blessing that comes uh, for those that are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And really this frankly speaks of us recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy or our spiritual dependency on God uh, or before God. Uh, this isn't about self-loathing. It's not about hating yourself and putting yourself down and thinking that you're terrible. It isn't, it isn't like that. It's recognizing our inhumility, our dependency on God, and really recognizing it. This is, I am created, and I'm standing before the one who is uncreated. Uh, I am finite, standing before the one great, eternal, uncreated God who is infinite. Uh, and He's infinite in every conceivable uh, manner of perfection. In one sense, Christian to every Christian is, by definition, poor in spirit. All of us are poor in spirit. That's actually so. But what Jesus is saying is there's a blessing when we realize that. When we come into, in, con, into connection with that... When we re- realize the truth about our spiritual condition, there's a blessing that comes to us because it allows God to move more, more dynamically uh, in our lives because we're, we're connecting with our need for Him. The, the vast majority of, of the world and, and certainly us in, in, in our own lives, we don't fully realize our need of God, really. We kind of do, and we can sort of check the box off and say, "Yeah, I need God, and He's, you know, He's He's important, and I want to follow Him, and I want to." But if we really saw, like, if we saw what the, if we saw things from the Lord's perspective, wow! And and that's what the Holy Spirit does is helps us to see more and more uh, as as years go by, seeing more clearly how much we need Him. Uh, you know, the song, "Every Hour I Need You." Uh, so that's really the, this thing of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Next comes blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, the Greek word for, that's used uh, for mourn, which is translated mourn, implies that, that weeping that we normally associate with grief uh, over the death of a loved one. 
Okay, so it, it, that's, it, it comes with that connotation. So the vast majority of us, we read this and we're like, okay, so blessed are those, uh, uh, blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they will be comforted. So there's this picture of God coming alongside us when there's a loss, a profound loss in our lives, many, many different kinds, and the Lord comes by His Spirit and provides uh, a comfort for us. And that, that's, that is legitimate. That is, that's very, very true. However, in the, in the flow of the, of, the, of the Beatitudes, each one is addressing a spiritual reality. And so when Jesus says that we need to uh, respond to, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you realize, so if you think about it, the first one was blessed are those who are poor in spirit. When we realize our need of God, how much we need Him, this creates a, a mourning within us. It creates something within us that is just, uh, like we, we're grieved over it. And so we, we have that happening within us. And so it's an important thing to, that we, we realize that this is what's going on. Uh, and that there's this uh, poverty in spirit that, that comes, there's this comforting as we, as we recognize uh, the mourning that the Holy Spirit, or that's awakened in us as we look at ourselves uh, in that way. So the more that we discover the quality of our need of God or the depths of it, it produces in us this, this mourning and God comes alongside and comforts us. The third one is it says, the blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So this is a, a, a well-known phrase, but it's, it's somewhat challenging perhaps for us to, to sort of wrap our minds around. What is, it, what, uh, what is the word meek? Some, some associate uh, you know, meekness with weakness. And that's not the truth. Uh, so I want to say it in the, in, the, in the more correct way. Meekness is not weakness. Uh, sometimes we think it is, but that's, that's absolutely not the case. Uh, meekness is essentially a, a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. It's therefore, it's, there's two components of it. There's two aspects to meekness. One is my attitude toward myself, and it is also an expression of that in relationship to others. So, what I'm pointing to is this. You can see, hopefully, you can see that it inev- how inevitable it follows that like being poor in spirit and then mourning over that, you're coming into uh, a, true, not, a true view of yourself. So we start out recognizing that we're poor in spirit. There's a mourning and a grieving over that state and going, Lord, I need you. And we cry out for that. We recognize the truth about who we are and it changes the way that we interact with other people. So there's a blessing that comes to those that are meek or another way of looking at it might be to think of it in terms of gentleness. Uh, We recognize who we are. We actually have an accurate view of ourselves. Uh, before God. We're comforted in the reality that God loves us and that we are His. Uh, And then we begin to treat others out of that reality. A lot of times we get into into trouble when we have, when we're we're in, we're mistaken about who we are. You know, maybe we think too highly of ourselves. You know, and that can lead to problems in terms of the way that we, 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 we treat people poorly. If we think, you know, we can look down at people or we can, you know, treat them inappropriately. 
The other, the other uh, aspect might be we might think too lowly of ourselves, in which case, generally speaking, when we think too lowly or too poorly of ourselves, then we're desperately trying to control other people or manipulate other people around us because we don't recognize uh, you know, the truth. But the, true hum- the truth uh, about ourselves produces, again, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it produces in us uh, this re- reality, this characteristic of the kingdom of God called meekness. Continuing on, it talks about, it says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now this is one of those, remember how I said that it's sort of countercultural, uh, and that it's, it's simultaneously uh, attractive to the world, but also, you know, simultaneously repelling as well. This is a good example, meekness actually is a good example of those things. Uh, you know, you, you, we like meekness maybe in somebody else, but we ourselves don't necessarily want to be meek. Uh, you know, let, let the other people be meek and I'll, I'll be strong and, and, and tough. You know, but this, uh, this is another one. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, that sounds, on one level, again, that sounds good, but it, again, you could look at it and go, you know, if you're, you know, for those in the world that aren't connected to Jesus and don't know him yet, uh, boy, that doesn't make sense. Like, who wants to hunger and thirst for righteousness? That just sounds weird. And there is a growing desire. This speaks about a growing desire for God and the righteousness that God embodies and displays. Okay, so it, this one kind of makes, might make a little bit more sense uh, to us, right? Like, we, we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. And that there's this filling that will come, that God will satisfy that. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness speaks of this desire to be free from the power of sin and the, te- and the, and the power of temptation. We long to be free from that. Like, how, we all know what it is. There's, there's things, there's attitudes, there's behaviors, there's aspects of our lives that, boy, I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to, to speak that way. I don't want to think that way or whatever it might be. We all have these. We, you know, we all have them. They're all things that we're growing in. There's aspects of my life that I absolutely want to change uh, under, God's, under God's leadership. We all are, have, have that. You know, and so there's this desire, this hungering and thirsting going, I'm not okay with this aspect of, uh, I, want it, I want to be more obedient. I want to be more Christ-like in this area of my life. But, whoa, I'm having a hard time. And this, that, that is what Jesus is talking about. That, that when we come into connection with these things and begin to hunger and desire, you know, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, you know, when you're, when you're thirsty, uh, you really, and you can, a thirst can, a physical thirst can get quite acute. And you just, you got to get some water, you got to get some juice or, or something. And you, you really, you know, say, you know, we haven't had too many really hot days yet this summer. I'm hoping for a few more. But you know what it's like when it's hot outside and you're, you know, you're working and you're doing some stuff. You get thirsty and you're like, i got to get inside and get a glass of water. There's that thirst and you just sort of, it dominates you. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, there's this hunger and thirst and desire for righteousness. Uh, and that this is something that God uh, will fill. He will satisfy us. As we hunger and thirst for Him and His righteousness, He will satisfy that. And that's a profound reality. And Jesus goes on and He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Now, the point of this beatitude is not that we have to show mercy in order to get mercy. It sounds almost like you could read it and go, okay, so if I want to get mercy, I'm going to have to be merciful first. That's not quite really what what Jesus is saying. The reality is, is that through grace, we have been saved. And we have already, every one of us, have been shown indescribable mercy. Uh, It says in the scriptures that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed us mercy. The essence of mercy is that we didn't deserve it. And that's that's the characteristic. But Jesus is calling us uh, to be a people that are, are, are merciful. And what he's saying is that as we grow in the revelation of God's mercy to us, that he is the, the mercy that He has already given to us, the more that we will actually respond in showing mercy to others around us. Let me say that again. The more that you and I connect with how much mercy God has had on us, has given to us, when that really strikes us, I don't mean just intellectually, yep, God, mercy, got it, check, moving on. Uh, I'm talking at a heart level. When at a heart level, I feel and recognize that God has been so unbelievably merciful to me, what that produces by the Holy Spirit is that I become more merciful to others. Uh, And that's really, it's just foundational uh, that we understand that that this is the truth. That the nature of God delights to show mercy. Listen to what it says in Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. So, do you know that God delights to show you mercy? Think of something that you delight in. Anything. So you know what it is to delight in something. God delights in showing us mercy. It brings Him joy. It brings Him gladness. He's eager to do it. And this is a profound reality. And as we recognize that God has been... He's lavished mercy on us. He's lavishing mercy on us now. He's lavishing mercy on us. And the more we come in touch, we come into the reality of that, the more genuinely that will change and we become a merciful people. So for those of us that would be like, wow, you know what? The truth is I need to be more merciful. I need to grow in this area. How do I grow and be, how do I become a more merciful person? Well, the scriptures say, would call us to get in touch with how much mercy we've received. And there's, there's many other scriptures that sort of bear that out. Moving forward, it says, Blessed are the poor, or the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, sin is a lifelong struggle. We're, until our last day and breath on, on, this, on this earth, in this age, we will struggle with sin. We're going to wrestle with it. But that doesn't mean that there's not a process of what the Bible says is sanctification. So to be sanctified means becoming more and more like Jesus. This is what sanctification means. And this is part of what God is doing. So, but when it says blessed are the pure in heart, it's not saying blessed are the perfect. Okay? Blessed are the perfect. Because then all of us can just sort of throw up our hands and, and you know count ourselves off. But the Scriptures don't let us do that. 
Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus is saying that sin clouds and clutters our spiritual vision of God and our ability to see or discern what God is like and what God is doing. So to, to see God... Obviously, maybe you think about you know Moses or something like that, or you know one of the great guys in the Old Testament, thinking, oh, somebody like somebody like that, you get to see God. No, you know the Apostle Paul talks about us having the eyes of our heart opened in Ephesians. He he prays for the church in Ephesus, and his prayer over that congregation is that God would enlighten, open the eyes of their heart. Uh, You know, perhaps you've sung that song, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. This is the spiritual eyes being opened to see. And the pure in heart are the ones that, that see that. So this is the ability to, again, to discern what God is like and what God is doing. And as we hunger and thirst for righteousness and seek to renounce sin and remove sin from our lives, we will see more clearly. That's, the re- that's just the process. The more we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing, our vision spiritually of God becomes more and more clear. Then uh, moving forward, just for the sake of time, I knew this was a lot. Like when I looked, I printed off my notes, and I'm, I'm just like, wow, this is going to be tough to get through. So I apologize if I feel like I'm at a, a galloping through this. But the next one is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is verse 9. Now this is really where we talk about you know, this whole thing of rec- relational reconciliation. So relational reconciliation is at the center of what this, this beatitude is, is about. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know that Jesus is the one who demonstrated this perfectly. He demonstrated it at the highest level. He was the greatest peacemaker through the cross. It says in Colossians uh, chapter 1, it says, And through him, uh, through, through Jesus, or, uh, to reconcile all things, things on earth and things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. So Colossians tells us that Jesus was the peacemaker who did so by his blood that was shed on the cross. And this is how he did it. He's come to, and he, to make peace uh, uh, with us and for us. And Jesus invites us to be in that same, that same activity of being a peacemaker. So the most... The, most, the greatest application of this for us is in our own relationships. Jesus is calling us to be active initiators. Active initiators of reconciliation. Now that sounds simple or straightforward, but a, a very brief you know, reflection on that, and we will all recognize sometimes it's hard to initiate reconciliation with someone else. There are, uh, in, in my family, I have, uh, my, my family, I have two brothers. They're identical twins. Uh, they're well on in years, and so they're, they're uh, in their early 80s now. They're, identi- they're physically identical twins. My, my mother uh, to- told me many stories of, uh, of how when they were growing up as children, uh, that the two boys couldn't be, to- they couldn't be 
you know, apart and they'd kind of get into mischief because they'd pretend that they were each other and all that kind of thing. Uh, for the last, now neither, I want to preface this and say that neither of them are believers, okay? But two brothers, identical twins, they have not spoken to each other in well over a decade. They've not spoken to each other in well over a decade. This is a hard thing for me to really wrap my brain around. I don't have a brother. I don't have any siblings. Uh, and so the whole sibling thing is, is a challenge for me to, to really uh, grasp experientially, of course. But recon, being reconciled, we all know of, of relationships that need reconciliation. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who initiate reconciliation in relationships. Hard to do. Very hard to do sometimes. Not trying to oversimplify it. I'm saying we can, but we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do it. We can begin. Now, let's move on. That brings us to the next one, which is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does one have to do with the other? Well, the reason why this beatitude in verse 10, in, and I'm, I'm lumping together verses 10, 11, and 12, because uh, they all deal with this theme of, of blessed are those who are persecuted. It's very powerful, this one, because Jesus, in light of the previous verses, okay, Jesus said that we are blessed when we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And now Jesus is saying that that very righteousness will often result in us being persecuted. So we're supposed to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then a couple of verses later, he's saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of that righteousness. The previous beatitude that we just looked at indicates uh, that we would be blessed for being peacemakers. However, Jesus knows and makes it very clear that reconciliation is not always possible. That doesn't mean we're off the hook. That doesn't mean we don't, we're excused from trying to initiate reconciliation. But, again, easily, we understand that there are relationships in all of... I, honestly, I believe it in the, in the majority of, of our lives here today. There are relation, you've experienced a relationship where reconciliation just hasn't happened yet. And yes, you want that to happen and desire for that to happen, hopefully. But Jesus is saying that doesn't always happen. And in particular, when you think about the flow of it, there's this hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness. And then he comes along and he says, I want you to know that not everybody's going to respond. That actually is going to cause trouble when you try and pursue the righteousness of God in your life. There is sometimes a persecution that comes. Uh, And that can take on many forms. Now, as I sort of begin to land the plane here, uh, I want to I also read this quote from one of my favorite guys, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of him. A uh, famous preacher years ago in England. He says this. He says, it does not, regarding this, this uh, beatitude, it does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable. It does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted as Christians because they are seriously lacking in wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in what they regard as, their, uh, as being their testimony. We are not told, blessed are the persecuted because they are fanatical. Neither does it say, blessed are the persecuted because they are overzealous. 
Fanaticism can lead to persecution, but fanaticism is never commended in the New Testament. What then does this beatitude mean? He says, being righteous, practicing righteousness, really means being like the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they are blessed who are persecuted for being like Jesus. I started, uh, I started today by saying that Jesus' ministry was all about the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Uh, I pointed out that the kingdom of God is a different culture. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount becomes countercultural. There is a kingdom of God breaking in upon the earth, and it is different. It is different in its values than the kingdom of this world. We understand that. But when this is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live according to the kingdom of heaven. And the, and the Sermon on the Mount is so important in understanding that culture. And finally, to repeat what I said earlier, the Sermon on the Mount matters to us because it helps us to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. What He's doing in, and what He desires to cultivate in each of our lives. And so I'm going to pray about that as we close. Lord, I thank You for Your Word and this different culture that You are creating and establishing in our lives. Holy Spirit, we just honor the work that You would do in us. And I pray right now that You would be working in each one of us uh, bringing that specific application. Lord, is there one of, of those beatitudes that you are highlighting to us today? Is there one that you're drawing our attention to in a particular way? I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us a heart that responds and identifies that application to our lives. Lord, thank you that you are at work. I thank you that you are at work you are at work in our lives. I thank you that you are at work in this congregation, in this spiritual family. And Lord, again, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to gather together today. Uh, we bless you and we honor your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for part two next week.